COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. Hey guys, and welcome to episode eight of Altitude Crime. I'm Amelia Allen, and we are discussing Colorado true crime stories. Before we get started, why don't you go ahead and follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And please connect with me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast and on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. Please comment with your thoughts on this episode or suggest a crime. You can always visit the website, altitudecrime.com, for source materials. This is really exciting, you guys. This week's episode is another listener suggestion from a listener who tells me he is all ears. And this listener gave me a crime to cover that is a lot different than our other episodes so far. This week's episode is going to cover a gang leader from Grand Junction named Christopher Wilson. And guys, I want to give a little disclaimer on the audio quality on this episode. I'm actually watching one of my pets who is a little under the weather, and I am recording in a room that I don't typically record in. So thanks for listening to what might be a little bit of a garbled episode, but let's get into it. So our All Ears listener gave me a bit of information about Chris Wilson's early life, but I had a hard time tracking much of that down in paperwork or newspapers or anything. 
This listener said that Wilson aged out of the juvenile system, uh, but of course that's always very hard to confirm, being that records for juveniles are far less released than those of adults for confidentiality reasons. At age 20, on January 2nd, 2006, Wilson and three other people attacked a 62-year-old man walking home from a Greyhound bus station. The information I received is that Wilson was released from jail in 2013, but there is little accessible public record to confirm this. What I can tell you is that starting in 2016, Chris Wilson and his cronies would unleash chaos in the town of Grand Junction, Colorado, that would be unmatched by most crimes in the area. Chris Wilson became the chapter head of a Grand Junction gang called Satan's Disciples. He is also referred to as Chris Fafeta. According to a profile of the group by George Knox of the National Gang Crime Research Center, quote, The Satan's Disciples have an almost 40-year history as a predominantly Hispanic gang originating from Chicago. The gang is a folks gang, unquote. The folks are a group of gangs all originating in Chicago. In addition to a number of areas in Chicago, Satan's Disciples also have a presence in 22 other states, including Colorado. Wilson, also called Fowl or Fable, had a network of disciples in Grand Junction. They included Robert White, whose nickname was Black and was also Wilson's advisor, Sean McDonough, who was 37 at the time of these crimes and went by Sean Carr or Basco, was the gang's chief of security, William Lebrec, also known as Snook or Lil Smoke, was Wilson's chief of enforcement, Jeremy Rango Martinez was the group's Secretary of Treasury. Van Clyde Peacock, who also went by the nickname Ace. 22-year-old Terrence Richardson, who also went by TJ or Dirty. Jonah Gallagher, Ryan Lang, Eric Passero, who was actually a juvenile at the time of the crimes. James Moradian, Larry Taylor, Jonas Larson, and Isaac Fryer. These are just a small list uh, that has been put out to the public as far as members of Wilson's gang. Uh, I am unclear on if there were more people attached to the gang at the time, but these are the names that you see referred to most often. So let's set the scene for where these crimes happened. Grand Junction is located in western Colorado near Colorado National Monument, and it's about four hours west of Denver. Grand Junction got its name because it is the point where the Gunnison and Colorado rivers meet. Grand Junction is also home to Colorado Mesa University. The city itself is rather small, and you can actually drive across town in less than 20 minutes. As of 2019, Grand Junction had a population of just over 62,000 people. So given the size of this town, you can really see why gang activity is even more terrifying than in a big city. At least in a big city, you can kind of hang on to that mentality that something bad won't happen to you or it'll happen to somebody else. But when havoc opens in a small town, the risk just really seems greater because People are kind of more out in the open. You kind of only have so many options if you're going to commit a crime, and one of those town people is that option. 
Wilson's goal as the chapter leader for the Satan Disciples in Grand Junction was to grow the gang through crimes and to start recruiting new members. This would also give them a better standing with the national level of the group. The gang's hub was an apartment at the Monument Inn located at 1600 North Avenue, and it would be on North Avenue that they would begin their plan. The plan would start on November 8th, 2016 at the La Mexicana Market. In the weeks leading up to the planned armed robbery, Wilson had surveilled the store and knew the timing of police patrols that went back and forth on North Avenue. Wilson would not execute the robbery. It would be William Lebrecht that would go in with a gun into the store instead. That day, Maria Cruz Ruiz was working as a clerk when she was pistol whipped by Lebrecht and dragged through the store by her hair. Lebrecht also held the people in the store at gunpoint. When he robbed the register, his loot was only $150. Lebrecht eventually pleaded guilty to aggravated robbery and he was sentenced to 20 years behind bars. Almost exactly a month later, on December 7th, 2016, the CNF food store was also robbed at gunpoint. Samuel King would be working that day and had no idea the chaos he would be walking into. This robbery was done by Terrence Richardson, who was able to steal $300 and cigarettes, just barely an upgrade from Lebrecht's takings the month prior. The robbery took place just around the corner from the previous armed robbery of the La Mexicana market. As a final act of terror on North Street, four months later on April 12, 2017, North Avenue National Pawn would also be robbed. This attack was carried out by Van Clyde Peacock and Jeremy Martinez. This crime would be twofold. While Peacock and Martinez broke into the pawn shop, Sean McDonough staged a distraction at the Domino's Pizza, a just a six-minute drive down North Avenue from the pawn shop. Despite the distraction, Peacock and Martinez were not able to steal anything of value from the pawn shop. McDonough and Peacock were eventually issued an arrest warrant for this robbery. All three incidents took place within a radius of a seven-minute drive. Now you can just imagine how scared the people of Grand Junction were. And North Avenue is really the main drag in the town, so there really was no way for locals to be able to avoid going there in the midst of this crime streak. The common thread in all of these crimes was the planner and director of the events, Chris Wilson. While terror in the form of armed robberies was consuming North Avenue, the worst crime of Wilson's reign would occur just before the second robbery. On December 5th, 2016, the Grand Junction Satan's Disciples would add murder to their accomplishments. 20-year-old Caleb Fettig was stabbed to death at the A&W Mobile Home Park, also located on North Avenue. He was killed by Terrence Richardson. Why it was Caleb that was targeted is unclear, although I don't think Wilson really needed motivation outside of just wanting to commit crimes in the gang's name and whip up some terror in the city. Wilson would come to implicate himself in this specific crime. According to Wilson's Mesa County indictment, quote, Wilson directed Richardson to strip out of his clothes, take a shower, and put on new clothes that Wilson provided him. Wilson then disposed of the murder weapon and Richardson's bloody clothing, unquote. 
Richardson eventually received a second-degree murder charge for the killing. Caleb's family staunchly believes that Caleb would still be alive if it weren't for Wilson's directive to murder him. The last of Wilson's eight-month criminal rampage would be an attack on his landlord's house on June 2nd, 2017. This incident took place on the 2800 block of Mesa Avenue, where Wilson staged a home invasion at the home of his elderly landlords, Larry and Betty Kempton. The attack was thought to be due to what Wilson deemed an unfair hike in his rent. Multiple of Wilson's gang members were involved in this particular crime. It was Sean McDonough, Jeremy Martinez, Jonah Gallagher, Eric Passero, and Ryan Lang that were instructed to rob and then burn the house down. Among the items they took were jewelry, guns, and alcohol. They then used Molotov cocktails to try to burn the home down. And while this did set some areas of the home on fire, it failed to burn the house completely to nothing. It did, however, cause a ton of damage to the home, ranging in the tens of thousands of dollars. On their way to leave the property, they also set fire to the 1963 classic Ford Thunderbird the couple owned and the trailer that was nearby it. According to the authorities' investigations, one of the gang members indicated that had anyone been inside the home at the time, they would have killed them on sight. Thank goodness the Kimptons were safe out of harm's way that day. COVID-19 has kept us separated, but not disconnected. In the midst of quarantine, drive through birthday parties, and front yard celebrations, a local Colorado Springs business was started with the goal to provide a way for our community to safely and conveniently support small businesses. I am so excited to support Front Porch Gift Company. Their beautiful gift boxes are filled entirely with local products from Colorado small businesses. And they have so many options to choose from. Their website has a variety of preset boxes available for purchase for more regular gift occurrences like birthdays and housewarmings. Or they can create a custom gift box based on your budget and your recipient. Corporate gifting options are also available for those of you that want to give your employees something special after this crazy year. Front Porch Gift Company is woman-owned by a couple of the most lovely ladies I know, and they are incredibly talented at crafting the perfect gift for any occasion. There is free local delivery for the Colorado Springs area, and additional shipping options are available. So whether you need one, five, or 500 gifts, Front Porch wants to help you give a meaningful gift to the people in your life. So give big, shop small. Use code ALTITUDE for 10% off your purchase at www.frontporchgiftco.com. You can also find Front Porch Gift Company on social media at Front Porch Gift Co. An end was put to the group's crimes when an investigation began in the area to identify local gangsters who were trying to break into larger criminal organizations. The investigation in this case was pretty astounding. First, because it's not easy to categorize gang activity into individual cases. 
there was a lot of manpower needed as authorities had to cross-reference with cases of other street crimes and even homicides to confirm what all could be linked to the gang. Authorities did find that the gang was attempting to initiate young kids within the community and were trying to recruit kids as young as 14 and 15. The growth of the gang also brought gang members from outside the state who were transporting drugs and taking part in other illegal activities. This was reflected in the influx of graffiti throughout town, consistent with the style of the Chicago arm of the gang. The second challenge to this case for authorities was that racketeering like Wilson's is very hard to prosecute. Anyone who has read the book Helter Skelter about Charles Manson can understand this. It's very hard to collect the correct and specific type of evidence to prove someone's presence in a case without them actually being present to commit the crime. But the Mesa County prosecutors did it in this case. Wilson was arrested in June 2017 for his crimes in Grand Junction that occurred between 2016 and 2017. He originally faced 24 charges. These charges included attempted burglary, burglary, aggravated robbery, menacing, assault, attempted theft, theft, tampering with evidence, first and second degree arson, criminal mischief, and contributing to delinquency of a minor, and that was in regards to juvenile gang member Eric Passero. He was also hit with weapons charges for possession of a weapon of a previous offender, but these were eventually dropped, and he was indicted on a total of 19 charges that would go before a grand jury. One of the charges also included in this was racketeering, as emphasized by the Colorado Organized Crime Control Act. This act is really focused on the number of criminal activities that someone can take part in, and it really targets criminal enterprises. It also focuses on the prohibition of racketeering activity, and really this kind of offense is very specific to criminal enterprises and gangs. It's not something you typically see in serial killers or things like that because there's not so much that level of hierarchy and not that level of somebody giving orders but not being present at the crime. Wilson's case was arranged as a grand jury trial. Authorities chose this due to the time-sensitive nature of racketeering investigations. The typical court trial that we see more often comes kind of at the end of a case. Charges have already been determined and a trial is more to just determine if they're guilty or not guilty of said charges. A grand jury case, on the other hand, is involved more at the beginning stage and involves seeing if the charges should even be brought against the defendant and if the charges are even valid. This was really crucial in a racketeering case as they can often be difficult to prove. And additionally, the community was looking to put Wilson away and they wanted the harshest sentence possible, and doing a grand jury trial was a way to do this. While awaiting trial, the 31-year-old Wilson was placed on a $500,000 cash-only bond. This was insurance for the public that he would not be able to roam free while waiting for trial. 
Prior to Wilson's trial, the last racketeering charges placed on someone in Mesa County was in 2013, which was four years prior. This was a case against Francisco Peralta Cabral. When wiretapped, it was found that this restaurateur was at the top of a drug dealing ring. Cabral and his underlings were arrested, and he was sentenced to 32 years in December 2013. So that really shows how uncommon this type of charge is, because I can guarantee you there was more gang activity happening in the area or in Colorado during those years, but it's just not one that you often see charged or prosecuted, and it makes it both very challenging and very unique for investigators to deal with. Wilson's attorney certainly tried to turn the tables on the story that was presented to the grand jury. The defense argued that Wilson was retired from gang life and not active in the gang at the time of the crimes. They even had one witness that stuck up for Wilson. This man said there was no way he was a gang ringleader and that he was a great dad and he was a devout follower of the Jewish faith. The witness felt that Wilson had that life behind him and he was trying hard to make something of himself. The defense also tried to paint the witnesses in this case, many of which who were Wilson's own gang members, as criminals who had reason to lie in order to make their sentences less harsh. However, much of the evidence against Wilson came in the form of Facebook messages implicating him in the crimes. The defense rebuted this again as they felt that the messages from Facebook had been picked out methodically to point the finger at Wilson, but that in a whole, they did not show him as being involved in the crimes. As a last effort, Wilson's attorney tried to factor in a jailhouse incident to try to garner some leniency for him. In June 2019, while being held in custody awaiting his trial, Wilson was stabbed by convicted murderer David Castro. Castro was already in jail as a suspect for first-degree murder. After the stabbing, he was also charged with attempted murder. Castro had targeted Wilson as supposedly Wilson had lied about something regarding Castro's original murder case. The brutal video footage showed that Castro struck Wilson 68 times, and it turned out Wilson had 16 puncture wounds and or cuts on his body. No other inmates intervened or came to Wilson's aid during the attack, and they just let prison guards deal with it a few moments after it started. And I have to say this kind of makes me laugh because you just have to love the odd brand of jailhouse justice. At the end of a six-week trial in December 2019, the grand jury served an indictment for Wilson on 18 of his 19 charges. Due to Wilson's continued activity, habitual criminal charges were able to be used in his sentencing. The habitual criminal process allows prosecutors to hit criminals with longer sentences for what could be considered smaller crimes, but because the offender does them often, they can sentence them for a much longer time. Wilson was held without bond between receiving his guilty verdict and his sentencing trial. On March 2nd, 2020, at the Mesa County Courthouse, Wilson was sentenced to 194 years in prison. The first charge for a pattern of racketeering held a 96-year sentence. 
the remaining charges resulted in a 194-year sentence. He is only serving 194 total because he is serving those two sentences concurrently. 21st Judicial District Court Chief Judge Brian Flynn had decided that Wilson posed a serious threat to the community. With the length of this sentence, he is safely tucked away from the rest of Colorado. Caleb's family members spoke in court during the proceedings. Caleb's mom was vocal that Wilson ordered the hit and was relieved to see him go behind bars. She thought that Wilson's sentence was appropriate. Wilson's lawyers planned to appeal the decision on the basis that Wilson did not receive a speedy trial. He awaited his trial in jail for over two years, but I haven't found any further information on the status of that appeal as of right now. And I've told you a little bit about what happened to all the other gang members a little earlier, but I do want to additionally note that Terrence Richardson received a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole for Caleb's murder in February 2019. Like I said earlier, this case is a lot different than the others we have covered. And honestly, I maybe don't have as many thoughts on it as I usually do. I typically don't dive into the gang or kind of group style murder or crime cases. I don't know what naturally leads me to not do that. I think there's just a lot of dynamics there that I don't fully understand. And because I haven't immersed myself in that type of content, I just haven't really grasped onto it quite yet. And it really is a story of human dynamics. Uh, especially you look at things like this, you look at Charles Manson, there's a very specific hierarchy and very specific indoctrination that has to happen in order for, you know, cult followings or gang leaders or any kind of dynamic like that to really happen and have people go out and do activities like this at the word of someone else. It is super, super interesting. I'm not saying it's not interesting. I think it's just not one of those that I've totally dove into yet. Um, but it is something that's very important for us to understand as a true crime community and as a human that you are totally susceptible to that kind of brainwashing happening. Um, if somebody pushes the right buttons, you know, being self-aware is a huge bonus against brainwashing. So be self-aware. <laughs> Um, but here's a couple of musings that I do have for us to ponder over. So musing number one. So I have to think that Wilson is kind of two-faced. And I think that's really, truly only to make people not suspect him. So you look at this guy that served as a defense witness and attested to Wilson's great character. You have to wonder if Wilson was kind of cultivating that relationship in order to have that person in his back pocket later on. Or there's a couple other options. He could have been intimidating him. You never know. Or, shocker, you may just never know someone as well as you think you do. Musing number two. I found it really interesting in this case that many of the gang members ended up testifying against Wilson or having some kind of interview with authorities that led in building evidence against Wilson. I feel like this doesn't happen very often given most gangs views on snitching. 
So I think it's a really interesting dynamic and kind of tells you that maybe those members weren't as indoctrinated as Wilson maybe thought they were, and they were willing to kind of put that behind them in order to have some self-preservation. So in this case, I guess instead of snitches getting stitches, I think snitches got lighter sentences. So thanks for joining me today for a little bit of a different story. And thanks again to my listener who is all ears for recommending this story. It definitely was something a little different and a different area of Colorado that we haven't talked about. So it's really exciting. And guys, please keep the recommendations going. You can contact me on Instagram at Altitude Crime Podcast or on Facebook and Twitter at Altitude Crime. If you want to check out AltitudeCrime.com, there is an email on there as well if you'd rather communicate that way. I want to cover what you guys want to hear, so keep the suggestions rolling in. And don't forget to follow or subscribe to Altitude Crime on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And again, source materials, as always, can be found at AltitudeCrime.com. So thank you so much for spending this part of your day with me. I love knowing that you're taking some time out of your week to hear about these stories and that you like hearing them from me. That is just the coolest. (laughs) So tune in next week for another episode of Altitude Crime. Episode 8, Christopher Wilson, the Grand Junction Gang Leader, was written, edited, and recorded by Amelia Allen. Music provided by Podbean.